You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. But honestly, what else do you really know about reindeer? I mean, yeah, sure, they can't actually fly. Well, except, of course, that one magical night a year. But Santa couldn't have picked a better animal to pull his sleigh, because they do have some pretty amazing abilities to help them survive some of the harshest conditions on the planet. And long before Santa enlisted them to help deliver toys, reindeer were important to humans for a whole bunch of reasons. So let's take a closer look at those animals of myth and legend, the reindeer. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now, it makes sense that Santa, living at the North Pole and all, would choose reindeer to pull his sleigh. Reindeer, or caribou if you live in North America, have what's called a circumpolar distribution. Their native habitat is the tundra, boreal forest, and mountainous regions of the Arctic and subarctic in the northern hemisphere. Call them what you want, they're members of the deer family. Reindeer and caribou are the same species. Scientifically, Rangifer tarandus, with seven living subspecies. Two additional subspecies were declared extinct in the early 1900s. Now, there is some debate about whether reindeer and caribou are actually different species, but even if they are, they'd still be very closely related. So, for the sake of simplicity, and in deference to Santa and the holiday season, I'm going to be using reindeer as the generic name. Now, Santa didn't start hitching up reindeer until 1821. At least that's when an anonymous illustrated children's poem titled Old Santa Claus with Much Delight was published. A picture that accompanied the first verse of the poem depicted a sleigh with a sign saying rewards being pulled by a single unnamed reindeer. A young dasher, perhaps? We don't know. More reindeer were added to Santa's team and given names two years later in 1823, when the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas was published, more commonly known as The Night Before Christmas. Although, fun fact, the original names of Donner and Blitzen were Dunder and Blixum, which in colloquial New York Dutch translates to Thunder and Lightning. Although published anonymously, authorship of A Visit from St. Nicholas was claimed by Clement Clark Moore in 1837, and he changed the names of Dunder and Blixum several times in subsequent versions, eventually settling on Donder and Blitzen. Donder became Donner, the modern German spelling, sometime after Moore's death. In 1902, L. Frank Baum, best known for writing The Wizard of Oz, wrote, the life and adventures of Santa Claus, and he had Santa hitching up ten reindeer with completely different rhyming names, Flossy and Glossy being the leaders. But apparently, this was the JV reindeer team, and their names were never as memorable as the originals. Rudolph joined the team in 1939. His poem was written by Robert May and published as a book to be given to children by the Montgomery Ward chain of department stores. Now, May's brother-in-law was songwriter Johnny Marks, known for many other Christmas standards like Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and Holly Jolly Christmas, and he wrote the song, the one I started this episode with, in 1949. 
Recorded by the legendary Gene Autry, it hit number one on the Billboard Pop Singles chart the week of Christmas in 1949. It eventually sold over 25 million copies and remained the second best-selling record of all time for over 30 years. But long before their association with Santa, reindeer were important to indigenous people living in the Northern Hemisphere. The earliest people living in this region, about 45,000 years ago, hunted reindeer for food, clothing, and tools. In addition, reindeer were domesticated somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 years ago. They're the only large-scale, semi-domesticated deer species in the world. They were used as pack animals for pulling sleds, so there was a precedent before Santa hooked up his team, and they were even saddled and ridden like horses. During World War II, the Soviet Army used more than 6,000 reindeer and 1,000 reindeer herders to transport food, ammunition, equipment, mail, and even wounded soldiers. Now, obviously, domesticated herds of reindeer can be kept for meat, like we do with cows nowadays. But also like cows, they can be used for milk. Well, the female reindeer, of course. Don't try to milk a male reindeer. But you heard that right. Milking reindeer goes back to the first domesticated herds. In fact, reindeer milk is some of the richest and most nutritious milk produced by any terrestrial mammal. It contains 18 to 22 percent butterfat and 10 percent protein. For comparison, cow's milk is 3 to 4 percent butterfat, human milk is 3 to 5 percent fat. But reindeer can only produce about two cups a day. In many Nordic countries, reindeer milk is made into a sweet cheese. A diet heavy in reindeer milk could explain both Santa's belly and his affinity for milk and cookies. But before you go out and start milking reindeer, let's talk about some of their physical characteristics. Reindeer are generally bigger than the familiar white-tailed deer. They stand about three to five feet tall at the shoulder. Depending on the subspecies, females, which are called cows, are five and a half to six and a half feet long and weigh between 180 and 250 pounds. Males, known as bulls, are a little bigger, six to seven feet long, and weighing between 350 and 400 pounds. Along with variations in size, the color of reindeer's pelts varies widely depending on the subspecies and season. More northerly dwelling reindeer tend to be smaller and have a lighter color. More southerly species tend to be larger and darker colored. This is very evident in North America. The most northerly subspecies in North America is the Piri caribou, which is the smallest and the whitest. The mountain caribou, a more southerly species, is darker and larger. And these differences make perfect sense when you think about it. A lighter color in the far north means better camouflage against the snow in the treeless tundra. Smaller size means a lower nutritional requirement and less surface area to lose heat from during the Arctic winter. Now, the reindeer's coat is the primary way they regulate their core body temperature in relation to their environment, and it consists of two layers, a dense woolly undercoat and a longer overcoat consisting of hollow, air-filled hairs. Like deer, these air-filled hairs allow the reindeer to be an excellent swimmer. They can reach speeds of over six miles an hour, which is three times faster than the average swimming human and equal to the top speed of Michael Phelps. Reindeer swimming across wide rivers during migration is such a common sight that the British Museum has in its collection a 13,000-year-old sculpture depicting two swimming reindeer. The sculpture is carved on a mammoth tusk, 
and shows a swimming female, identifiable by her teats, followed closely by a male, identifiable by his larger size, antlers, and genitalia. The sculpture is thought to be an illustration of the annual autumn migration. Now, you might be asking yourself, how would they know that this sculpture specifically illustrates the autumn migration? And the answer is antlers. Both the sculpted reindeer have antlers. Now, in most deer species, only the male normally grows antlers. Reindeer are unique in that both bulls and cows grow antlers annually. Females shed their antlers in the spring, after the birthing season. So, during the fall migration, females would still have their antlers. Antlers begin to grow on bull reindeer in March or April, and on cows in May or June. The bull's antlers are, on average, the second largest of any other deer, after those of the bull moose. Relative to body size, however, they have the largest antlers of any living deer species. In the largest subspecies of reindeer, the antlers of large bulls can reach 39 inches wide and have a beam length, which is the distance from the base of the antlers to the farthest tip, of 53 inches. Antler size measured in number of points reflects the nutritional status of the reindeer and climate variation of its environment. The number of points on bull reindeer increases from birth to five years of age and remains relatively constant from then on. Like other deer, the main function of the antlers for bulls is to battle other bulls for access to cows. Two bulls will lock their antlers together and try to push each other away. The most dominant bulls can collect a harem of 15 to 20 cows to mate with. During this time, bulls often stop eating and lose much of their body fat reserves. Bulls will shed their antlers in early to mid-winter, but since cows are pregnant during the winter, they need to defend their food, so they retain their antlers until spring. Antlered cows acquire the highest ranks in the feeding hierarchy, gaining access to the best forage areas. Because of this, antlered cows and their calves are healthier than those that don't have antlers. Calves of mothers that don't have antlers are more prone to disease and have a significantly higher mortality rate. While their pelt may be the primary way reindeer regulate their body temperature, they also have a couple other tricks to help them cope with the chilly temperatures of the Arctic. One is called countercurrent heat exchange, and it's used by many animals that live where the temperatures are extreme. First is their nose. Rudolphs might have glowed red, but all reindeer and other animals like moose have special nasal bones that dramatically increase the surface area in their nose. When they exhale, moisture from their breath is condensed in the nose. Incoming cold dry air is then warmed and humidified prior to entering the lungs. Some of this captured moisture may also be absorbed into the bloodstream. The reindeer's legs are also equipped to engage in countercurrent heat exchange. Blood vessels are closely knotted and intertwined. Arteries carrying warm blood to the skin and legs exchange heat with the cold blood returning to the body. This helps the reindeer maintain its core body temperature with less heat loss to the environment. Heat is recycled instead of dissipated. Reduce, reuse, recycle. It's not just for aluminum and cardboard. Moose, fox, and many other animals living in extremes of both hot and cold climates have a mechanism for countercurrent heat exchange. Reindeer have large feet and cloven or split hooves with four toes. 
In addition to two small toes in the back, called dew claws, they have two large crescent-shaped toes that support most of their weight and serve as shovels when they're digging for food under snow, an activity known as cratering. These large hooves give them stable support on wet, soggy ground in the summer and crusty snow in the winter. The pads of the hoof change from thick and fleshy in the summer to hard and thin in the winter. In addition to this seasonal change, long hair grows between the toes and covers the pad, so the reindeer walks only on the horny rim of the hooves. This reduces the reindeer's exposure to the cold ground, another heat-saving feature. Now, when you get to be my age, sitting and standing are often accompanied by the snap, crackle, and pop of a variety of joints. The knees of many subspecies of reindeer also make a clicking sound. The sound is made when they walk or run, when the full weight of the foot is on the ground or just after it is relieved of the weight, and it's caused by tendons slipping over bone protuberances. The sound is audible from several hundred meters away, and it's considered to be an honest signal of body size. The larger the reindeer, the louder the knee clicking. So for reindeer, rather than this being a sign of getting older, it's actually used as a way for them to establish dominance. Biologists believe that this may be an example of non-vocal acoustic communication. When up on the roof there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Maybe that was just the sound of the knees of eight reindeer. But reindeer have even more unique features. Their eyes are also unique. In 2011, it was discovered that reindeer can see light in the ultraviolet range, wavelengths that we humans can't see. It's thought that this helps them survive in the Arctic, because many things that would blend into the landscape in light visible to us humans, like urine and fur, produce sharp contrasts in ultraviolet, helping them avoid predators. Reindeer are also known to avoid power lines, and it's thought that this might be because they can see power lines not as dim, passive structures, but as lines of flickering light stretching across the landscape. But what makes reindeer eyes even more unique is that they change colors with the season, something that's not known to happen in any other terrestrial mammal. In Arctic reindeer, the tapetum lucidum, the reflective tissue behind the retina in the eye, is gold in the summer, like most animals, but in the winter it changes to blue. And there's a very interesting explanation for why this happens. In dark conditions, the pupils dilate and allow more light into the eyes. When it's bright again, the pupils shrink. With reindeer in the Arctic, the long hours of darkness of the Arctic winter forces their pupils to dilate for months at a time rather than hours or minutes. Over time, this constant effort blocks the small vessels that drains fluid out of the eyes. Pressure builds up inside the eyeballs and they start to swell. The tapetum is made up mostly of collagen fibers arranged in orderly rows. As the pressure inside the eye builds up, the fluid between these fibers gets squeezed out and they become more tightly packed. The spacing of these fibers affects the type of light they reflect. Under normal light conditions, they reflect yellow wavelengths. When squeezed together, they reflect blue wavelengths. But while this color change is essentially a result of having swollen eyes, it does make them significantly more sensitive to light than what they are in the summer. Some researchers have suggested up to a thousand times more sensitive. But even if it doesn't quite reach that magnitude, it still translates to better vision during the dark Arctic winter. 
Now, like other deer, reindeer are ruminants. They have a four-chambered stomach. In the summer, they feed on sedges, grasses, and the leaves of willow and birch trees. In winter, they eat mainly lichens, especially a species called, appropriately, reindeer lichen. On a side note, lichens are a composite organism, not a plant, not a fungus, but rather a combination of algae and fungus living in a mutualistic relationship. But what makes this diet truly interesting is that they are the only large mammal able to metabolize lichen, thanks to specialized bacteria and enzymes. The enzyme lichenase, which breaks down lichenin to glucose, has only been found in reindeer and some species of slugs and snails. Reindeer are also what's called osteophagous, meaning that they gnaw on and partially consume shed antlers as a dietary supplement. In some cases, they may get impatient and start gnawing even before the antlers have been shed. In the spring, when they're nutritionally stressed, they might consume small mammals like lemmings, bird eggs, or fish. Now, normally, deer are crepuscular, feeding at dusk and dawn and bedding down in between to digest. During the Arctic summer, when there is continuous daylight, reindeer change more than just their eye color and hoof texture. They change their sleeping pattern, too, from one synchronized with the sun to just sleeping whenever they need to digest. Reindeer calves are generally born in May or June and average about 13 pounds, and they're unique in their own right. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with adorable spotted whitetail and mule deer fawns. The spots on these fawns help them camouflage. For the first four weeks, their mother leaves them hidden and returns to nurse a couple times a day. Reindeer calves, on the other hand, do not have spots. They don't need them. Their mothers are not going to leave them hidden. Within 90 minutes of birth, reindeer calves can run as fast as an Olympic sprinter. Within hours of being born, they can keep up with the herd, and it's not unusual for calves to run at speeds of up to 50 miles an hour for 30-some miles per day during migration. Now, very few predators hunt healthy adult reindeer, although several will attack a sick or injured adult. Wolves, not surprisingly, are the most effective natural predator of healthy adult reindeer. Wolverines, grizzly bears, and polar bears will prey on calves, birthing mothers, and weakened adults. On rare occasions, they might take a healthy reindeer, but a healthy adult can usually outrun any of those three. Although in one case, a polar bear was observed chasing a reindeer into the water and then attacking it, a technique it repeated the next day. Some wolf packs and individual grizzly bears might follow a particular herd of reindeer and live off them year-round. In some regions, like central Alaska, the most prolific hunter on the calving grounds might surprise you. I know it surprised me. It's the golden eagle. Golden eagles can have a wingspan of nearly 8 feet and can take down prey that equal them in weight. Now, some populations of reindeer, generally those that live in the forest, are sedentary, making only small movements throughout the year. Others, mainly those in the barren ground subspecies, undertake the longest migration of any terrestrial mammal, traveling up to 3,000 miles per year and covering 400,000 square miles. During migration, they might travel only 35 miles a day, but they might do it at a speed of 35 to 50 miles an hour, spending the rest of the time eating and sleeping. During the spring migration, smaller herds will group together to form large herds of 50,000 to 500,000 animals. But during autumn migration, the groups are smaller as the reindeer begin mating. 
In the winter, reindeer travel to forested areas to forage under the snow. In the spring, they leave their winter grounds for the calving grounds, isolated, relatively predator-free areas like islands and lakes, peatlands, lake shores, or tundra. Females tend to be warier than males, and they get to choose where they want to give birth, so it's the females that lead the spring migration. And that, my friends, is all the information I have to tell you about reindeer. But since we're coming into the winter season, I want to leave you with a couple of non-reindeer-related winter thoughts. The first is the idea of Koslig, spelled K-O-S-E-L-I-G. Now, maybe it's my Scandinavian heritage, but I'm a fan of winter. Koslig has no direct translation, but cozy comes the closest. It's best described as the feeling you have after being outside in the cold, when you're sitting by the fire, wrapped in a blanket, sipping hot cocoa, and surrounded by friends. It's social, but it also has a connection to nature and the outdoors. My final thought is this quote by an anonymous author. If you choose not to find joy in the snow, you will have less joy in your life, but the same amount of snow. Something to think about while you're sipping that hot cocoa. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please leave a like and subscribe on whatever your preferred podcast platform is. It doesn't cost you anything, and it helps me out. And just a reminder that if you want to support future episodes of the podcast, please consider becoming a patron. Find out how by going to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. Or you can make a donation on PayPal. My PayPal name is dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. Have a message you want to get to me, a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode, leave a comment or send me an email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, wishing you a joyous Yule and a happy holiday season, whatever you choose to celebrate this time of year, and reminding you to go outside and get dirty or snowy, and then Come back inside and enjoy the coastling. Yeah, I'm probably not using that right, but you get the idea. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.